This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the Electric Sheep Magazine film show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Electric Sheep assistant editor Alex Fitch, and in tonight's show, we have a variety of interviews looking at upcoming festival films and a new book about experimental cartoonist and animator Thalma Goldman. Later in the show, Virginie Selavy will be talking to the East End Film Festival programmer Andrew Simpson and the Masonic Temple Cinema programmer Josh Sacco, and also to Evrim Ursoy, the programmer and presenter of Duke Fest III. There's also an extract of a conversation between Austrian filmmaker Peter Cherkaski and British director Peter Strickland, which was recorded at the ICA, and our usual eclectic choice of music tracks. Our first interview of the night is my conversation with authors Richard Hallam and Sylvie Venet Tuppy about their new book, Thalma, An Artist's Life, looking at the work of experimental filmmaker, fine artist and animator of erotic short films, Talma Goldman. It struck me that Thalma's uh, heyday was kind of 40 years ago, and even though, you know, before I started recording, you were saying that she probably is still a name that's well known, but as it has been a couple of generations since her work was out there and being discussed in magazines like Time Out, it does seem like your book is a timely reminder, you know, to introduce her work to a new generation. Well, I think it, it would be lost otherwise, mm. because uh, there's hardly any record of it, is there? And uh, Talma is not, hasn't been the best person at promoting her own work. No, I mean, it all happened a long time ago, so, and as you just said, I mean, there's nowhere to show animation anymore. You see it on, televi- on, on television, on, blue, on uh, YouTube, on on the net if you know where to look Mm. where you can see it anywhere I think it's been nice to inject a kind of personal element into it too you know because of her we've known her so long and there are interviews with her friends who obviously know her you know and so I think we both felt that it was kind of a point in time was passing when it would no longer be possible to do that you know Mm. uh, to Try and get a sense of uh, who she is and was. Mm. How did um, both of you meet Helma? I think I met her at once some sixties party. Yeah. You know, I, mean, uh, <laughs> well, I met her through my husband, who had a studio in Soho mm. in Waldemuse, um, and at the time I was looking for a camera where to shoot her films and she needed help as well. So I think Bill Sewell was uh, still alive at the time and they were good friends and uh, Peter, my husband Peter Tupi, came uh, to help her as well on the camera but also uh, drawings or colouring or whatever needed to be done. Yeah, and as the book delineates, her style was very much uh, time-consuming that rather than using animation cells, she did individual drawings for every frame of animation. So that must have been a very time-consuming process. Yeah, she used a combination of techniques. I think she did use cells. But as you say, I I think Amateur Night was mainly individual drawings. Mm. And the method is described in the book, you know, it's kind of uh, just flicking over the the pieces of paper to see how things moved. Mm. 
I mean, it's interesting. The book also discusses the controversy that some of her uh, films engendered, how that they were seen as being almost anti-feminist for being too provocative. Was that sort of unique for animators in the 1970s, that her work was so kind of provocative compared to the work of other people? Can we think of anyone to compare her with? No, there were um, several women uh, who were making films. Caroline Leaf was one of them, mm. and she was very famous. Alison Devere, of course. Uh, and I must forget uh, many other women, but I think Tanma was different, her work was different, because it was about sex. Mm. Um, it was a kind of full frontal attack on, on the <laughs> subject, you know. Was, um, I don't think she was very consciously trying to provoke No, that. I mean, I mm. don't think she was. It, it she was, just did it naturally. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> So she was actually surprised and shocked by the reaction that, why, why would anyone dislike my film? Yeah. Well, I mean, it does seem that, you know, when people talk about feminism now, it's a broader church. It's, you know, something that can discuss female sexuality. But at the time, it seemed to be more about, you know, women's rights and bringing mm. the discussion of female sexuality into it was almost kind of, you know, muddying the waters. You can't talk about that, you know, as yet. But even the feminists were split. So right, the okay. Sappho, this... Mm organisation wanting mm. to show her films at their clubs <laughs> and other feminists wanting the films banned. So, you know, it, she's always divided opinion, I think. Mm. Which is good. Mm. Sure. I think. And certainly as a celebration of female body types, it's really refreshing to see her work. Even now, there's something about it that seems quite, you know, daring because... Um, there's much discussion in social media and advertising and the kind of imagery that people are exposed to all the time that celebrates uh, certain kinds of female bodies and then anything that's outside the acceptable norm you know, is still very much fringe, which I think is a great shame. Yeah, I, mean, I think that trend is even increasing now. You know? mm. The ideal mm. body type is very fixed now, it seems. Yeah. Mm. But I think it's very good when Tanma says, um, the, you know, um, the four women... In, in a kind of way, and I think a lot of women feel that way. You do feel fat when you're not fat, you feel thin when, you, um, when you, you're not thin, and it goes on. I mean, it's not simple, it's just not one type. Mm. It borders on a lot of things, I mm. think. And mm. that's what Tanma, I mean... And she says she's yeah. all those types. Yes. Know? Yeah. It almost seems inconceivable now as well that obviously there's full frontal female nudity in the animation, but at the same time, it is just animation that drawings of a female body could upset people so much. Mm. But her films are very erotic. Oh, yes. And that's good. I think yeah. erotism is what we need. Yeah, yeah. Without being titillating, it's erotic, yeah. Mm. yeah. Obviously, she's gone on to be a fine artist rather than an animator as the decades have progressed. But even at the time that she was doing animation, presumably Talma worked in different media. And that was something that is reflected in the cartoons as well, whether it's uh, drawings, whether it's paintings, whether it's uh, inclusion of photography. I don't know that she was doing much painting at that time, was she? Okay. Um, no, drawings. Yes, mainly certainly. drawings. Yes, yeah, certainly yeah. drawings. Mm. Just simple line drawing very often of people. Okay, so paintings of people like Clark Gable appeared in the animation before it appeared in her fine artwork. Yes, I would say that ah. the fine art work evolved out of the animation. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And on her walls, 
Well, she used to paint on her walls. Oh, she yeah, well, painting, uh, painting on the pavement and uh, yeah. everything else that was any, any available you know, public space. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as, as well as uh, the tragedy that she didn't finish her last animation in 1980 and there hasn't been any work of that kind since, another tragedy is that your book shows one of the homes that she lived in, which was almost painted from top to bottom like something by Gaudi, right. you know, which is now lost to the public and perhaps would have been something fascinating for people to visit on, say, an open house weekend. Yeah, that's true. But not all is lost on the last unfinished film because mm. the archivist at the British Film Institute has actually transferred the old film to video. Ah. And we now have, well, maybe, I don't know, five, ten minutes worth of that film, mm. which could be edited into a new film. So mm. that's a project which may happen yeah mm. yeah because Telma herself in the book says you know it's something perhaps I should finish before it's too late you know sure. Sure. how long was that last film meant to be as far as you know I think it was meant to be quite a long 20, long 20 minutes at wow. least on, yeah. and she had a grant from Paramount mm. it was really good yeah it's unfortunate but maybe we'll see something mm. of it mm. in the very near future well yeah, I mean, I've seen these video clips and there's some beautiful sequences in there. Definitely mm. worth worth saving and making into something. Yeah. The book itself is quite an interesting structure that when you're discussing different periods of her life, you bring in uh, different collaborators for each interview. I guess that's as much as when we do have different groups of friends in different periods of our life, they might have shared memories that we don't have access to ourselves. Yeah, I, I guess most of those friends were sort of contemporaries of each other, weren't they? I mean, they, mm. they weren't sort of sequences in mm. their life, and they've remained friends, and that's why we've had such easy access to them, because <laughs> we all know each other, and they're all willing to, to be interviewed. Yeah. And they might as well play a different role, each of mm. them, a different type, but close to one another, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And Peter was a teacher. Yeah. Peter is, is still an artist, mm. uh, working most, mm. most days as an artist. Mm. And of course, Julian and uh, Neil were both kind of heavily involved in the kind of uh, cultural scene. Yeah, I mean, the interviews obviously have to be kind of edited quite yes. heavily, <laughs> brought together. But I mean, they are kind of fairly spontaneous kind mm. of mm. reflections on, on Tom's work. Mm. As a fine artist... Uh, do you think that she's someone who has been neglected to a certain extent in the sort of pantheon of British female artists? Well, in order to be recognised, you have to expose yourself. Yes, and, <laughs> and not in the way that people think of. <laughs> so I think that is being Thomas' problem, that mm. uh, she hasn't had the right sort of venues and, and the right sort of push to kind of get behind her and get herself exhibited mm. in various places, yeah. Mm. Um, and the work is a bit controversial, but yeah. I mean, I think these latest betting slip images are really kind of very fresh and original, mm. and I think there would be an opportunity to exhibit those once, you know, once people know that the work is out there and could be shown, mm. you know, yeah. Both in your book and indeed in the uh, extracts from magazine and newspaper articles that you reprint from the 1970s, uh, there's often mention of her Israeli background. How much do you think her Jewish identity is important to her as an artist? Do you think there's any manifestation of it in her work? 
I wouldn't say it's important to her. I would just no. say it's, it's her. You know? yeah. She can't help expressing it. And, but she's not sort of consciously Jewish. You know? mm. She doesn't sort of think that she's a Jewish artist. No, no. no. it goes beyond that. I mean, it's not... Uh... Her personality is very Israeli. You mm. know? I mean, it, I would say you know, it's kind of quite brash and extroverted and no-nonsense and, uh, mm. you know... Um, I don't know how many Israelis you know. Nonsense, but, uh, oh, yeah. nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so yeah, no, the, I think the influences are certainly there from the Jewish cultural background, mm. but it's difficult to pinpoint them, I think, mm. because to some extent that's the influence on East European art as well. I think. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, uh, in terms of Eastern European art, there seems to be influences of people like Egon Schiele, uh, the German Expressionists, uh, Aubrey Beardsley. Mm. Loads of artists from the first half of the 20th century mm. seem to be feeding into her work, which is interesting that for uh, a female artist working in the 70s, rather than doing art that was perhaps considered to be sort of pop art, and perhaps many of her contemporaries might have done, that she was looking back to an earlier period and reworking it you know, for um, an exploration of female sexuality. Yes, again, it's difficult for her to get her to talk about yeah. these kind of issues, you know, why she was doing what she was doing. Um, I don't know, um, I guess just drawing figures came naturally yeah, to her. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, uh, yeah that's Tanma, but I don't think she's aware of what she's mm. doing. Yeah. The final cartoon that she worked on then that was abandoned in 1980... Does she give any reasons why she finished working on that and indeed then gave up on animation as a medium? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons. I mean, probably the main one was the fact that she had become a mother and had a young, ah. young child to look after and yeah. bring up. You know, That'll do it. <laughs> that, that was a major influence. Uh, and the other, of course, was the fact that, you know, people were turning to uh, computer-generated images. And mm. The old-style animation was disappearing wasn't it uh, so yeah yeah I mean it's I'm not quite sure what happened because she was uh, really getting to the end of her film I mean I saw Russia in the way 20-25 minutes half an hour and it was really really good just needed a very good editor and mm. there were quite a few at the time in Soho so I think that maybe the fact that she had Jenya um, yeah, and got too much of a. It's been so distraction. <laughs> the wrong word. Um, and yes. financial problems well, too. Yes. You know, she wasn't yeah, earning was, anything well. really. I mean, her father, I think, subsidised a lot of her yeah. living in expenses. You know. Mm. And I suppose even with the grant from uh, Paramount, you know the reputation that must be preceding her to a certain extent in the 1970s being known as a person whose work is occasionally banned and you know booed crazily by certain audiences must make it a double-edged sword it's great to be infamous but at the same time it's better to be famous (laughs) so for a a modern audience who are discovering her work perhaps for the first time uh, with your book what would you hope you know that they um, take away from reading it I think a sense of shock, <laughs> <laughs> just at the the power of the images. I think, um, mm. and yeah, realizing that there is something special about them. You know? mm. um, and I hope it does lead to you know some galleries getting interested in showing her work. Uh, 
Yeah, I think Tanma's art is uh, powerful, interesting. I also think that uh, it describes a certain time mm. in London where animation was really... It was, it was a very special thing. People were happy to be working together, helping each other. It was a cottage industry. Mm. And a lot of people, it was a small world. And I think there are quite a few references in the book about that era and how people worked. Mm. Am I right? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, well and the interconnectedness of everyone, mm. you know, the... the References to people like Hugo Pratt and David Warner. You wouldn't mm. expect both of those to get mentioned, you know, within a couple of pages. Yeah. And Paul McCartney. Yeah. 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 Was the world that small? Oh, it was a very small uh, Well, yeah, animation was a very small world where everybody knew each other. Mm. Uh, not, I'm sure it was competitive, but it was not the main thing. He was, yeah, helping one another, working together. That's what I remember. And also enthusiasm for other people's yes. work. You know, yeah. Not this other element of strong competition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, Sylvie, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Talma, An Artist's Life, by Richard Hallam and Sylvie Venet tuppy is available now from Pole Presser Press. And you can order it online by going to polepresserpress.co.uk. That's P-O-L-P-R-E-S-A press.co.uk. The short film Stanley by Thelma Goldman can be found on YouTube by going to youtube.com stroke Thelma Goldman Cohen. That's youtube.com stroke T-H-A-L-M-A-G-O-L-D-M-A-N-C-O-H-E-N. Coming up next is Virginie Selevy's interviews with... Film Festival programmers Andrew Simpson, Josh Sacco, and Evrim Ersoy. And to get you in the mood for American independent cinema discussion, including one of the films at Duke Fest, which comes from Detroit, here's The White Stripes with Fell in Love with a Girl.
now. Okay, so Evelyn, you've been running the Duke Mitchell Film Club with Alex Kidd for a number of years now. Uh, and in that uh, film club, you present obscure, outlandish short films, trailers, fine footage, VHS material um, that you dig out somewhere uh, secret. Um, three years ago, you started the annual Duke Fest Festival at the Prince Charles. Um, so what was the idea behind doing a, a festival? Well, Alex and I always liked the idea of being able to present a curated season. And we've tried that before in the Duke that we did a one-day festival and then we tried something a little longer and then it naturally came to doing a sort of I wouldn't call it really a fest per se it's just sort of it's something that wants to be a festival but isn't quite there yet and the idea was that Prince Charles wanted to do something with us and we really want to work with Prince Charles because they're a great venue and they gave us two nights and we thought well this is great we, we start with the opening and the closing which will be stuff that are too big to show at the Duke you know UK premieres and that kind of thing and then we can just build the rest of it around those. And um, the emphasis is, is more on rare, very strange kind of material that audiences will not have seen before rather than feature-length uh, films, even though you're open with one. Is that a fair description of what you're, what you're trying to do? To be honest, the, the, the emphasis is on stuff we love that we want to share with an audience. One of the reasons why we started The Duke in the first place was that people seem to be stuck in the same 20, 30, 40 titles in the film clubs, there wasn't anything interesting going on, whereas Alex and I were constantly trying to dig deeper, find new stuff, explore new genres, directors, you know, stars, entire countries, and the the, the fest just takes it one step further. We always like having a couple of features to open and close, and sometimes, well, I mean, this year we're not closing with a feature, but the closing event is something Alex wanted to do for a very long time, but I saw our opening film... Uh, a year and a bit ago at another festival and fell in love with it and was looking for an excuse to bring it to the UK. And Alex met the guys in Philadelphia in November and they were so keen for us to do it and I was still so enthusiastic about it that we just thought it'd be perfect. Okay, well, talking about the opening film, uh, that's the documentary uh, 20 Years of uh, Madness. Um, so why did you pick it as your opening film? Can you tell us a bit more about the film? I think it's one of those rare documentaries that really captures the idea of creating and creativity and how it can enable people to be more than the sum of their parts. A bit like Jodorowsky's Dune, which is an incredible ode to sort of the act of creating. This is about this public access show in the 90s, uh, which made these kids, you know, rise above all the crap that they had to deal with their lives. And 20 years later, they've fallen all around. Some of them have normal life, some of them have drug addicts, some of them have bigger problems and they come together again to do one last episode and it's just this thing that binds them brings them together and makes them you know realize that there is a fighting spirit in them and they can continue with their lives and it's, it's sort of an ode to human creativity and I love it for that you know I'm, I'm a bit of a soft touch at heart and I I'd like to think the best of humanity <laughs> Um, well, and it's also the worst of humanity with the satanic panic phenomenon. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what's, what, what can people expect? Well, on, on Monday, we're taking a look at the Duke's methods to how to survive a satanic cult. I can tell you, I saw the entire show this weekend. Alex was round mine and he played me each of the bits he's edited. And it's amazing. What Alex does is almost impossible to describe and... Is, is is you have to be insane and, and, and wonderful to be able to do it. He takes out away hours and hours of these tapes and he just edits them into these 
fantastic chunks where not only do you get the whole point of the tape, but you can also see the entire insane raison d'etre behind it. And I think people are going to find out, you know, interesting phenomena like what level of Satanism is there and how crap UK Satanism is compared to their American counterparts, <laughs> which is one of my favorite bits. <laughs> and that's all VHS, right? Uh, no, no, that's that stuff is from VHS, but Alex has edited it. It'll be, it'll be the VHS part of our uh, festival will be on Tuesday. Where we, we do this thing called the found footage uh, uh, experiment, where basically through the years we collect VHS we find in thrift shops in other countries, and I don't mean like copies of Point Break, like really odd, weird stuff, and we don't watch them. We just let them pile up. And then we all bring them out for the VHS experiment and we let the audience choose. And you never know what's going to you know, come through. Last time, Alex managed to find two tapes of homemade porn back to back. And it was very funny and he was mortified and that made it even funnier. So uh, this year we have some really interesting stuff. Alex has got a few wrapped up as mystery VHS. If anyone picks them, they're sure to get a surprise. So, you know, hopefully it'll be fun. Mm -hmm. And um, without revealing all of your secrets, uh, where do you find all this material? Oh, well, there isn't any secret to it. You just you just look. I mean, if you're passionate about something, you just look. And then slowly you start to see the connections and you start to see it go deeper. And once people realize that you're genuine in your interest, that there's no financial gain or you're not trying to claim superiority to anyone, people will share. We've got friends in America. We've got friends in Australia. People who share stuff with us, people who post VHS to us will share stuff to them. It's like this really mild friendly sort of brotherhood no secrets whatsoever so everywhere really okay and one of the things that uh, make um, the Duke Mitchell so special I think is the relationship with the audience with your audience yeah I mean we've had a very loyal audience for all our time we have a very hardcore sort of the basic audience who come to almost everything we do and we're so lucky to have them because it's great it's like having a group of friends that you can carry across London and you just you just tell them when to show up and they do. But it's also, we have a very passionate audience. You know, people will turn up to events and they'll be passionate of stuff. And we don't expect everyone to love everything, but it's the fact that people will come and take, you know, take a risk on weird stuff month after month that really makes us happy. And we always said it, the Duke's an extension of uh, my living room. It's what me and Alex do anyway. If it wasn't there, we'd still be doing it. But it's great that there's an audience for it and we can share it with them. Excellent. And uh, well, finally, what can we expect um, of the 35mm trailer closing night? Well, we have some special guests. Mm -hmm. One of them is here right next to me. Oh, right. Um, George Sacco. Yeah, from yes. Cigarette Burns. We've asked basically friends of the Duke, that people who we love, whose tastes we admire, to come and choose stuff that we might not normally choose. And, you know, we'll all introduce them. We'll have a little bit of fun. I hope, you know, things will go wrong. We'll all laugh at it. It'll be good. Um, Alex collects rare 35mm trailers and there's some great stuff and I've seen everyone's choices. There's some very unusual and out there stuff that people are going to get to see and you know, when was the last time you got to see an entire trailer show in a cinema uh, curated? So it's, it's going to be a one-off event that I hope people will respond and come to. Alright, well that all sounds fantastic. Um, let's now talk about the East End Film Festival. Um, so Andrew, uh, the East End Film Festival returns uh, on the 23rd of June. Um, what have you got in store this year? Uh, well, um, as ever, uh, the East End Film Festival is taking place in venues um, right across the Olympic boroughs of East London. We're screening around 
85 feature films, around 100 shorts. We've got lots of special live cross arts events. Um, so yeah, it looks like a it looks like a fantastic year this year. So it really breaks down into kind of a few different areas. The main focus of the festival is first and second time directors um, and sort of bold boundary pushing new filmmakers. It's very much kind of what we what we focus upon. Um, and then we've got different kind of strands within the program. We've got a we've got a Turkish focus, which I think we're going to come on to talk about in a in a second. We've got our competition selections for first and second time directors and for sort of the best and most powerful new political documentaries. We show an awful lot of political work at the festival, very politicised in terms of what we programme. And then we've also got a special focus on refugees and a special focus on um, uh, on community. So we're doing a, an awful lot of grassroots free community events aimed at different demographics within London. Um, because unlike a lot of other large film festivals, we really kind of embrace... Um, you know the idea of accessibility and community and diversity in, in audiences so we make a real sort of effort to kind of reach out to those people as well so yeah there's an awful lot of stuff to choose from excellent what about uh, the turkish cinema focus was it uh, what was the reason for choosing turkey well um every year at the festival what we what we do is that um our main prize each year is is um reserved for the best first and second time feature filmmaker in the program um, and every year, whichever whichever title wins that prize, the director comes back to the festival the following year is what's called our director in residence. Um, and they help us to co-curate a selection of films from their country, basically, new filmmakers. Um, and we've had um, we've had programs that have looked at Argentina, Mexico, Romania, Russia, India um, in, in the past. Um, and last year, um, a filmmaker called Tolga Karacelic won... Um, the main prize at the festival last year for his second feature, Ivy, which was kind of this kind of Joseph Conrad influenced sort of ship of fools piece based on a um, based on kind of a stranded Turkish cargo vessel off the coast of Egypt, um, and how kind of power structures within this kind of group of seamen kind of dissolved as they were kind of left stranded. It's absolutely amazing. Um, so he's um, Tolga's coming back to the festival this year. He's heading up the jury um, to choose this year's winner, um, and then he's selected a very kind of special lineup of of Turkish cinema uh, for this year's program. And uh, in this lineup is uh, Jan Evanol's Baskin. I, I saw the uh, short at Friday Fest and it was screened a few years ago and that was one of the best surprises of the festival. I haven't seen the future so I'm very much looking forward to it. And Evan, uh, you know uh, Jan very well and I know you uh, admire his work. Uh, what can you tell us about his film? Um, Baskin is the logical step for Jan, next 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 logical step and it's it's an incredibly visceral violent uh, brilliant film but also it has a fantastic uh, opening act which depicts uh, masculinity in turkey in a way that hasn't been done in genre before it's got some fantastic cinematography it's got some great music it's basically sort of uh, the, the signal that uh, everyone needed to remind uh, them that there is a Turkish genre world coming out there because Jan's not the first, there's other people trying to do good stuff, but Jan is the first breakthrough. And, you know, Baskin has had a great uh, run at the festivals. He started off at Toronto Midnight Madness, then he came to Fantastic Fest, and it's been to Citrus, he's done this round, but also quite brilliantly, it's done really well uh, back at home in Turkey. It had great box office, even though. It had a lot of complaints and a lot of walkouts. People still went to see it in droves. So um, it's, a, it's a great calling card for John, who is currently working on his next film. Uh, so, you know, expect great things from him. Excellent. 
Uh, in terms of uh, genre cinema at the Stan Film Festival, I'm also very curious about We Are the Flesh. Yeah, um, quite possibly my favourite film in this year's programme. Um, it's a, it's a film that's almost impossible to describe, to be honest. I, I, I saw it in um, I saw it in Rotterdam um, in February, and I've just been raving about it ever since. And it was a long, hard battle to get the film in the festival, but we're really, really delighted to to be doing it. Um, Firstly, it has a connection to us in that um, our director in residence in 2014 was a Mexican filmmaker called Sebastian Hoffman, uh, who made an incredible movie called Halle, uh, which won our main prize in 2013. Um, and he's the producer of, of, of this, along with uh, Carlos Regadas, who's you know, um, basically um, you know, one of Mexico's uh, most high-profile filmmakers. But he's also been... Um, the film's also been really, really strongly supported by um, Alejandro Inarutu and, um, and Alfonso Cuaron as well. Um, so it's, it's you know, um, basically the leading lights of Mexican cinema are kind of uh, touting um, um, Mr. Minter as kind of the next kind of great Latin American filmmaker. And it's kind of ostensibly a kind of a post-apocalyptic tale set in this huge rambling house where this strange 40-something hermit-like man is, is building this weird sort of womb-like structure in the basement and there seems to be nothing kind of going on in the in the cityscape outside and then this young brother and sister arrive and he takes them under his wing and essentially makes a, a kind of a strange Faustian pact with them in exchange for his protection and then it's sort of the film kind of melds into kind of the realm of kind of uh yeah incest and cannibalism and uh existential rebirth and kaleidoscopic imagery and it's absolutely visually extraordinary and kind of unlike anything I've ever seen before um, and Arrow will be releasing it uh, in the UK later this year I'm very excited to say it. we're really glad that we're working with them on that um, so yeah it's just quite simply unbelievable and everybody should come and see it it's pretty bonkers um, but okay, wonderful yeah it's, 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 it's really something okay great that, that sounds great um, okay, and uh, yes, there's always been a sort of a link to music in the mm -hmm. festival and interest uh, in music. And this year you celebrate uh, 40 years of punk. We do. But it's not just about looking back at the history and at the past. Yeah. You also have films about Riot Girls, you, you have films about uh, Pussy Riot. Mm -hmm. um, so what was the idea about, how did you curate that? Yeah, well, um, I mean, obviously it's kind of something that people are talking about an awful lot this year, given that, you know, it's being touted as, as, as some kind of anniversary for, for punk music, even though that's a very difficult thing to, um, to define, really. Um, and what we wanted to get away from was the idea that a lot of the, the sort of the celebrations around the history of punk have very much kind of been, you know, focused on, you know, Uh, the Sex Pistols and McLaren and, and you know, very much kind of the, um, you know, that, that kind of set of kind of British punk, really. And we kind of wanted to use the idea of 40 Years of Punk as a bit of a jumping off point for exploring sort of the cultural and political influence of punk uh, on music and kind of social movements around the world over the last 40 years. So, you know, we have, you know, we've got sort of classic stuff that looks at that, that classic punk era, like we've got, you know, Filth and the Fury, But then we've we've got sort of Pussy Riot, a punk prayer, which Mike Lerner, the director of that film, is going to come and introduce. It's still an incredibly relevant film. We screened it at the festival three years ago when it when it first came out. Um, we've got Taqua Core, um, which is a film about um, the American punk Islam movement, which is really just fantastic and, and just a, a really kind of just an incredibly kind of interesting kind of set of people who are kind of involved in in this scene and kind of how other sort of perhaps more traditional kind of social values that come from, you know, a, a, a different kind of hereditary kind of extraction are kind of mixed in with the kind of the ideas of punk and, 
and you know kind of rejecting kind of the conservative ideas of your of your elders we've got um we've got riot girls in la um uh, vera darling's film um which you know we're going to be screening in the uk for the first time with a skype q a with the with the director and that's a really really cool movie um again kind of looking at this you know the the riot girl sort of punk scene in la and how that kind of bleeds over into other kind of movements for for social change and how there's a real kind of embrace between different kind of political activist groups kind of connected to to that world um, and we've got a couple of kind of riot girl bands from the UK who are going to be playing um, after the show as well, so that'd be really really fun. Uh, and we've got an awesome film called Lost Punks as well, which is kind of all about the sort of the Latino backyard kind of punk scene in California, which I really like and is kind of a bit of a personal sort of pick of mine from that selection. So yeah, it's really cool, and hopefully it's it's kind of just an excuse for us to talk about things that we like to explore in the program a lot, and basically look at the idea of punk in a different way from perhaps how a lot of other people are doing it this year. So that's Excellent. the plan. Sounds great. Uh, and as in previous years, there is a whole weekend of screenings uh, planned at a fantastic Masonic temple in Liverpool Street. Um, so, Andrew, would you like to explain a little bit about this very special venue? Yeah, sure. So, um, for those that haven't been to the Masonic temple already, I feel enormously sorry for you. Um, <laughs> I think it is kind of one of the most extraordinary eerie and atmospheric venues that actually exists um in this city it was it was built um at the turn of the 20th century uh in what was the great eastern hotel uh next to liverpool street um so it's a a, you know kind of a very um a very famous uh victorian hotel van helsing stayed in the great eastern in bram stoker's dracula for instance so it's got it's got a bit of a a gothic lineage, I suppose. Um, and essentially what happened is the hotel kind of changed uses and changed layout and was refurbed and closed down and reopened again kind of over the, over the course of the 20th century. And at some point, and nobody's really entirely sure when, um, this room, this Masonic temple, um, was basically sort of boarded up and forgotten about. And then kind of about 15 years ago, the hotel was being refurbed. It was still the Great Eastern at that point, but it's, it's the Andaz Liverpool Street now. Um, and essentially someone was looking at a floor plan and said, oh, OK, this doesn't really match up. There's looks like there's a room here. And they essentially removed a wall panel and found this extraordinary marble-lined Masonic temple. So there's 12 different types of marble, Grecian style, for those who are kind of, um, you know, um, boned up architecturally to be able to kind of imagine, but you can look, look up pictures online. Um, and it's been fully restored and it's grade two listed now and... and we are lucky in that we're we're kind of the one sort of, you know, other other events take place there. But in terms of doing things which are linked to cinema, we're we're sort of the the one set of people who are actually given privileged access to to the hallowed ground. So we're um, so we we always host kind of a, a variety of screenings in there this year. I know we're going to be talking about the the weekend um, programming that's happening there, but we also kind of use it as the centerpiece for um, a mass masquerade ball, which will take place in the temple and across the entire first floor of the Andaz Hotel, um, which is going to be for around 700 people, and it will be centred on a screening of uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Santa Sangre, and there'll be a circus rig in the atrium and burlesque performers and live music, and that'll be a pretty extraordinary night, which happens on the Saturday, the 2nd of July. Um, so, yeah, the, the temple is amazing. It's kind of one of the most exciting things that we do at the festival every year. So, yeah, very pleased to be back. And uh, for the rest of the weekend on either side of the masquerade, uh, Josh has programmed a series of screenings around the theme of the collapse of civilization. And Josh, I think you've organised the films into some kind of narrative, haven't you? Yeah, so it's, not, it's um, I think I see it as one 
it's it's one event like it's yeah it's a narrative so each film is effectively a chapter in a story so when you sit down and you you start watching it you know you uh, the the first film is uh, Dead of Night which is a BBC I don't know 70s horror show um and so it's Dead of Nights, The Exorcism, which is about this uh, middle-class couple who are having a Christmas dinner for their friends in their kind of newly refurbished uh, farmer's cottage. Um, so I sort of see it as kind of dealing with the ideas of gentrification and sort of um, and, and ignoring the past because as they have their dinner, um, strange things start happening and one of the hosts gets possessed by a spirit who used to live there um, and then proceeds to tell her uh, they'll tell them all through the host um, just what horrible life she had and, and how her husband was killed and her children were starving and uh, the lord of the area <clears throat> um, was responsible for this but just didn't care while people were starving and couldn't feed themselves and stuff like that and so that sort of brings us into this idea of social responsibility um and so through the rest of the films you're kind of going through this this kind of how society is responsible for itself and what potentially could happen so um we then go on to uh the road which just kind of looks at like this situation of despair and um uh give us tomorrow which is like uh, a really great exploitation film um, about a bank robbery gone wrong but also deals with ideas of kind of class issues and, and working class anger um, or criminal class anger I suppose um, which is then followed by a 16 mil presentation of Ken Loach's Land and Freedom so there you've kind of got the working class revolt um, and the ultimate failure of that attempted revolt so then on day two you have the result which is Brazil, so you've got, you know, stupid bureaucracy and, you know, semi-futuristic, you know, um, followed by Dread, which is the law, um, and then The Running Man, which is presented by uh, science fiction theatre, so Dread and Running Man are sort of like how we keep everything in line, whether it's through entertainment or law, and, um, and then the last film is Things to Come, which is presented by um, Fillmore 70, Justin. And that's, I, I quite like the, I, that ended up coming in, sort of getting changed at the end. We had a, a full-on post-apocalyptic film, um, but I was quite sold on the idea of the last film, the ultimate future film, being a 1936 kind of throwback that, that sort of encapsulates the whole weekend into one. So I don't really like seeing it as individual films because I, I, I want to see how it plays out as a, a full narrative kind of told through the eight eight films um, which I think is, is quite an exciting kind of thing I don't know if anybody's going to really put films together in a way that tell an overarching story through them all um, and I'm quite interested yeah, to see how people respond to that as an idea you know so yeah no, that sounds really good I, I like the ending with things to come and yeah. it's going to be amazing seeing that film in that setting yeah yeah definitely yeah. Um, and uh, in, in your introduction uh, to the whole uh, program, you, you connect uh, the selection film and, and the um, the theme to the venue's Masonic uh, history. <clears throat> yeah, because I think you know, 
arguably the Masons are, you know, sort of one of the first unions, right? So they're, they're you know, um, uh, solidly working class in their background and, and whatnot. Um, and they're a utopian organization. I mean, they're working for the betterment of humanity and the future and stuff like that. But then at the same time, you know, there's like, that, you know, from a conspiratorial point of view, you're like, oh, actually, you're running everything, you know, so it sort of, it, 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 it sort of runs, I mean, there isn't, I guess, direct, but the, it's sort of a parallel ideas that the, the two could, you can look at Freemasonry and, and decide perhaps that in their world of utopia, maybe they are the controllers and they're dictating what's happening. Um, and just sort of, you know, even though they come from this working class struggle, I, I just thought it all kind of melds together into nice, fluid idea. Yes. Which I can't necessarily <clears throat> say. <probably. laughs> no, it all sounds fantastic. Uh, June is going to be busy. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Andrew, Edwin, and Josh. Thank, thank you. you. The East End Film Festival runs from the 23rd of June to the 3rd of July at various venues across East London. For more details, please go to www.eastendfilmfestival.com. Duke Fest the 3rd runs from the 26th to the 29th of June at the Prince Charles Cinema and Pimp Shui in London. And you can find out about the screenings by going to www.thedukefestival.com. Mitchell.uk. That's the Duke, M I T C H E L L dot UK. As East End Film Festival programmer Andrew Simpson was talking about 40 Years of Punk, which is screening at the EEFF, our next choice of music is The Sex Pistols with Pretty Vacant. <laughs>
Finally, in tonight's show, we have an interview with Peter Strickland, director of the Duke of Burgundy and Barbarian Sound Studio, which was recorded with Austrian filmmaker Peter Cherskaski at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. When we spoke last week, uh, you were mentioning uh, some of your influences. So, I think Pat O'Neill, someone I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen any Pat O'Neill films. I mean, you mentioned Water and Power. Um, But could you talk a little bit about... Just, and also about your, your books on the Austrian avant-garde as well. Well, when it comes to, to the question of influences on my film aesthetics or my concept of filmmaking, I always say uh, many things going on at the same time uh, on screen, on the screen. And Bertonil was and still is uh, the master of, of superimposition and, and masking and... and, and uh, condensing and compressing visual information uh, within a single frame and within every single frame so in a way he was or is more important than Peter Kubelka but Kubelka on the other hand he gave me the idea or he made me aware of the importance of the single frame that you have to think of every single frame as a unity which which deserves um, um, uh, Devotion, recognition, structure, in its own, as an entity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in, in terms of the sound, um, all these optical glitches, this optical distortion, this this is not sample. This is actually from, or you know, I would say mistakes. But this is from the, the process of working. Um. In, in the case of La Rive, the very first film which we saw tonight, the two minutes film, what we hear is, is the picture itself. I printed the picture over the edge of the frame, over the edge of, of the film strip, right there where normally uh, the optical soundtrack um, is placed. The optical soundtrack is a jagged line uh, running next to the pictures and is being uh, transformed inside the projector into what we hear. Um, so when I arrived here for the deck check, I immediately found out that the projectionist had written mute next to La Rive, the title, because he couldn't see or find an, a regular sound strip, so to speak. So I said, no, it's not mute. When I came to close up, and we are going to have Eve Heller and then followed by me, uh, a second screen tonight, he said, uh, I have a question about La Rive, uh, the sound. So he too had found out that there's no optical soundtrack. So that was a soundtrack created by the picture, the image itself. Um, in the case of um, outer space, since the optical soundtrack is an, 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 an optical element, just as the picture is, you can also collage it and, and recreate a new soundtrack, which I did in the case of outer space. Listening to the original film, which I had on VHS, it was pre-DVD time at least, as in my household, um, and deciding which part, parts I could use and, and, and mix and create. In the case of uh, Dreamwork, Kiawash, my composer, uh, received from my side what I had created in the darkroom without, without controlling it. I simply copied the soundtrack as it was. So it was kind of a noisy, a noisy version of the original soundtrack from those takes which I used. 
with several layers, of course, and to use bits and pieces of that too. In the case of instructions for a light and sound machine, same procedure, but what Dirk, Dirk Schäfer did is that he took tiny little parts of the soundtrack which I had delivered and, and created uh, micro loops which are moving along and uh, along the film, the soundtrack, and moving forward slowly. So, stuff like that. But everything which he used, so every tiny little bit of, of, of sound came from, from the darkroom. And in the case of um, um, uh, Exquisite Corpus, it's a pure composition by, by, by Dirk, we, which he, he, he composed, some, let's say, a minute, sent it to us, meaning even me, over the internet. We watched it, discussed it through Skype, and, and so moved right along, and finally the soundtrack was finished. How do you select the footage? The question is, how do I select the footage? In the case of outer space and, and, and dream work, I knew that I wanted to make a film where the filmic material is the main actor, as said before. And, and at that time, at least for me, pre-internet time, my friend Martin Arnold was working in uh, teaching in the United States, where it's relatively easy to, to, to gain film prints. And so uh, he gave me a list of film, film prints available. I read short descriptions of the, of the, film, of the films available. And the entity was described as a film where an invisible ghost haunts and rapes a woman. So I thought, okay, let's give it a try. It's only $50 for the print. And when I got it, it was just perfect. And, and, and starting to work on outer space, I immediately discovered a second film, so to speak, in the material as a wonderful, perfect shots, which I could not use for outer space for my concept, but create a dream film. In the case of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, uh, which is the basis for instructions for a light and sound machine, that was given to me by, by a Cinematheque, uh, one of those prints that should be destroyed. They asked me if I'm interested, and of course I'm interested. <laughs> and in the case of coming attractions, which, which we did not see uh, tonight, which is uh, part one of the Rushes series based on rushes for commercials, I got six hours of, 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 of rushes for commercials where you see models who cannot act, directed by directors who cannot direct, <laughs> repeating gestures and, and movements over and over and over and over again, uh, uh, based on the assumption that those two seconds which will appear in, in, in the fi fi finished version of the commercial will be somewhere within those repetitions. So that was an ideal uh, basis for a comedy, which I had to make, uh, because after instructions for a light and sound machine and the trilogy before that, the question of my relation towards violence came up. <laughs> so, okay, let's make comedy, <coughs> which I continued hopefully, uh, hopefully successful with with exquisite corpus. Exquisite corpus was uh, I was promised a print for a Busby Berkeley uh, film, Five Reels. Uh, when I opened the reels, there was not a single frame of Busby Berkeley, but so nudist film and a, 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 a Danish porn and, and a, a Italian semi-porn and, and uh, one reel of China Blue from, from uh, Ken Russell, uh, which the French copy, Ken Russell spelled wrong because it was a French copy and they don't, they don't give a shit about how to write the foreign names. And 
and a few shots from Tony Richardson, Richardson's um, Tom Jones, the woman eating the oyster and, and the bone. And that was based, of course, on well, you asked me about where I get my footage from. That was in third degree. But the exquisite corpus itself, the, the main concept is um, to refer to, to the ex exquisite corpse, the surrealist game with several participants creating one single drawing or a sentence and the passing on of, 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 of the sheet of, sheet of paper where the drawing is on or where the sentence is on, the single words uh, should be reflected in the, in the um, movement of the film strips, strips which we see in the beginning which started to bore me after a while, so I changed the whole technique anyway. And the exquisite corpse, which is of course analog cinema, uh, and the exquisite corpus, uh, showing the body of cinema, using footage which shows the body of, of naked men and women. So that was the idea, so to speak. Peter Strickland's films, Barbarian Sound Studio, The Duke of Burgundy and Catelyn Varga are available now on various shiny disc formats. And Peter Cherkasky's new film, The Exquisite Corpus, can be downloaded from the MUBI website by going to MUBI.com, M-U-B-I.com, stroke films, stroke the, dash, exquisite, dash, corpus. The Electric Sheep Film Show was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch with additional interviews recorded by Virginie Selavy. You can find all previous episodes of our show by going to www.electricsheepmagazine.co.uk stroke events and we'll be back on the third Wednesday of next month at 8pm on Resonance FM. Thanks for listening. This programme has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.